<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You're the mom, the maid, the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka. Nobody I ever had met had been through something like I had experienced. And, you know, I felt a lot of uh, guilt and failure and no understanding of why this happened to me or, you know, did I do something wrong or I didn't do something right. So many women have perfectly normal pregnancies and, um, and I didn't. I pulled that quote from my guest. Her name is Kara Belt. And I pulled that quote out because you don't even need to know what she's talking about. You don't even need to know what happened to her for you to relate to what she's saying, right? You probably have been through something as a pregnant woman or as a mom where you thought, why did this happen? Or did my body fail me? Did my body fail my baby? In Kara's case... Her issue was preeclampsia, and because of preeclampsia, she delivered her daughter at 31 weeks. She was two and a half pounds. Kara describes the size of a two and a half pound baby as a teacup chihuahua. She's a first time mom, and she has this teeny, teeny, tiny baby after a traumatic birth. But because of that, and because of her experience, and her desire to learn more about what happened, she is now the president of a support group called End Preeclampsia. That support group now has 30,000 members from more than 100 countries all around the world. And it's where women are connecting to learn more about their health, the health of their babies, what should I ask my doctor, what do I need to know, And you're going to hear all about that today. You don't have to have had preeclampsia to like this interview. You don't have to know anything about preeclampsia. I learned a lot about preeclampsia in this interview. What's cool about it, though, is number one, I didn't know anything about it really going in. And so I learned a ton. But I also related to so much of what Kara was talking about. So much of motherhood is relatable These little nuggets that it's like, well, I didn't feel that way for the same reasons, but I felt that way and I see you and I hear you and I'm relating to you and connecting with you. And that's what Kara is here to talk about, that connection. And in her case, it's connecting to other women through this experience of preeclampsia and making sure that nobody goes through it alone. Because in so many respects, she went through it alone because it was just different back then, right? Back then, I say back then because it was 15 years ago. Her daughter is a perfectly happy, perfectly healthy 15-year-old now. And yet Kara speaks about the experience like it happened just yesterday. It's still very real to her. And to anyone who's had a traumatic birth experience, it's probably still extremely real to you too. So I think you'll really relate to that. Something I learned about preeclampsia is, you know, you're probably here listening to this podcast today because you already have a child. Maybe you have two, maybe you have seven, maybe you're pregnant, Um, but you've joined this mom community because you've already been through this experience perhaps, right? Well, 
The biggest risk factor for preeclampsia is a first-time pregnancy. So this is something that your friend who hasn't had a baby yet might need to know. This is something that your friend who's trying to have a baby might need to know. Maybe you have a little sister who might need this information. So all of this is good. Don't think that you can't listen to this interview because you don't know much about preeclampsia. You're going to learn and you're going to relate and you're really going to appreciate the contribution that Kara is making to all of us having more information, better research being out there, and for all of us being able to advocate better for ourselves and for our babies. So Kara Belt is here with me today and she dives right into what happened 15 years ago in the days before she was about to deliver her daughter, Avery. So she's going to jump right in. And at the end of the podcast, I'll make sure you know how to contact Kara and how to join her support group and how to share that information with a friend too. So stay tuned to the end for that. But for now, we're going to dive right into Kara's experience. I think technically there was concern about four or five days, uh, maybe a week before uh, I actually um, hit a crisis point. So um, I went to a normal checkup and the nurse was like, well, you've, I had gained like seven pounds um, in maybe two weeks. And my blood pressure was a little bit higher than normal. And it didn't mean anything to me other than I was like, what did I eat this week that I gained seven pounds? (laughs) Um, And she was like, you know, she was like, we're going to have you do this um, urine test. You got to take this bottle home and, um, you know, bring it back to the hospital 24 hours later and just, you know, really take it easy, take it easy, you know, this weekend. And I was going to my baby showers that weekend and they were like, yeah, that's fine. Just, you know, make your, your partner do all of the heavy lifting. And I was like, okay. And um, I got a call that was on a Thursday and they, um, called me on Monday. I'd been scheduled to do an ultrasound because I was, the baby was measuring small and I didn't know that, but they had scheduled me for that next week. But on Monday they called and said, Hey, your urine test results are three times higher than they than normal. And I was like, that's a good thing. And they were like, no, that's not a good thing. And I was like, okay. I was like, so what do I do? And they were like, well, just take it easy and come in on Thursday for your appointment. And I was like, okay, sounds good. But watch out for a few of these symptoms. One was headache that wouldn't go away with Tylenol, swelling in my face and my hands, pain in my stomach, um, or nausea. And I had been nauseous for a few months, but at that point it had cleared up and, you know, they didn't have me check my blood pressure at home. Um, but when I knew that their, the readings were a little bit high and they were like, just come back on Thursday. And I was like, okay, sounds good. And um, well, it sounds like at this point, you're just going with the flow. There's no real alarm bells going off for you. It's just, I mean, pregnancy, you have no idea what's happening to your body in so many respects. Literally none. Yeah. Um, just like when they called to say like, it's three times, you know, more than normal. I was like, yes, you know, I'm a, <laughs> no, it's the, the other way around. So, um, I hadn't even attended my first like birthing class yet. And we, I was with my husband on, a, on my way to that first class the next day. When I woke up on Tuesday, I was like, wow, my face looks puffy, you know? And I was like, it's probably because they told me to watch for swelling in my face. And now I'm like hypersensitive. So I feel fine. Everything's fine. I was going to work. Um, went to that class on Tuesday night and my 
um, I was like, yeah, they told me to watch for this and that and swelling in the face. And um, when I'd asked him if I was swollen, he was like, no, you look fine. And then when I told him the reason, he was like, no, you're, you're terribly swollen. I just didn't want you to feel terrible about it. Oh, I didn't want see, you to feel bad going forward. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, now I'm a little more nervous, right? But I go to the class. Next day, I wake up. I had a, a symptom that's not really uh, a symptom you'll normally find on like a symptom checklist, but it's called impending doom. And it is just sort of um, a natural, your body's ability to know when it's in danger. It's different than anxiety. And I think it's, it's hard if you've never felt it or if you have anxiety already to maybe differentiate, but it was something that I'd never felt before. Uh, and honestly, my first thought when I woke up was you need to shave your legs today because something's not right. And you might have to go to the hospital. <laughs> wow. Um, and so I got up, showered, went to work. My coworkers and I, we were ordering lunch together. And while they're asking me for my order, I'm t- you know, typing at my computer and my hands are swelling before my eyes to the point where I'm like now not really able to type. Oh, wow. And my, eye, like all of a sudden I felt like, you know, like if you have allergies or you're really tired and your eyes get really like, they feel like they're gritty. My eyes started feeling weird and I went to the bathroom and my eyelids just so like the lids were swollen. And I was like, Oh no, like this is the swelling they were talking about. And so I called my midwife and they connected me into the midwife that was on at, at the hospital on call that day. So this was Wednesday. I was supposed to go the next day to my appointment and she talked me through, asked me a few questions. She said, you know, um, I'd like you to come to the to triage at the hospital. And I said, well, the, the office, the doctor's office is just down the street. I'd rather just go there. And she was like, well, no, I'd really just rather you come in here. I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, she's like, can somebody, like, how did you get to work? And I was like, well, I drove to work. And she said, well, can you get somebody to bring you here? And I was like, I'm fine. I can drive myself. Yeah. As I'm on the phone with her, I start to double over in pain from this stunt. Like I was awake for all of this, the symptoms to kind of manifest. And I was like, oh, I have this, you know, really terrible pain um, right in your breastbone, your sternum. And she was like, yeah, if you could just get one of your coworkers to like, you know, bring you over, that would be great. So of course I drove myself and (laughs) Um, which well, uh, because really, what were you thinking at this time? I mean, this is sounding like it's pretty panicky, but you're still playing it pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm still like, okay, I've got like, you know, 11, 12, you know, 11 weeks to go. They're going to put me in a hospital bed and watch me and keep me, you know, maybe I'll deliver a couple of weeks early and something to watch out for and and be aware of, but like not an, not an emergency. (laughs) So I got to the hospital for whatever reason, there was like young nurse, she probably had just started and she took my blood pressure and then she stopped and then she took my blood pressure again. And then she walked out of the room and came back with a different machine and took it again. And she was like, I, I think I'm doing something wrong because your blood pressure is, you know, high, like really high. And she's like, so I'm going to bring the doctor in. I was like, okay. At that point, I texted my husband and I was like, you know, you might want to come over. He knew I was going to the hospital, but I was like, you can stay at work. It's fine. That's what we do. (laughs) Yep. 
he had it over and the doctor came in, took my blood pressure again. And, um, and, uh, at that point my husband was there and he was like, you know, your blood pressure is really high. I think that point it was 180 over 120, which hypertensive is 140 over 90. Um, so at this point it's extremely, extremely high. And I was like, okay. And he was like, we're going to get a bed ready for you. And, um, you're going to stay here until the baby's born. And I was like, okay, same thing in my head. Like I've got like 11 weeks to go. Maybe they'll deliver me a couple weeks early. So I'd better figure out what I'm going to do with myself for, um, a couple of weeks and, uh, a couple of months. And my husband had the wherewithal to say, what kind of time frame does that look like? And the OB said, it will be on call who was wonderful said, we're going to hope to get you 48 more hours before you have to deliver. Oh, wow. And I was like, what? 48 hours. And he was like, well, we'd like to get steroid shots, you know, um, in for the baby's lungs and, you know, stabilize your blood pressure, you know, and we'll see how it goes. Like we need to scan the baby too and see how the baby's doing. So we're like so, 30 weeks, you say like 29, 30 weeks. Yeah, I was about 30 and a half, 31 weeks. I was about okay. 31 weeks. Um, so I delivered um, exactly at 31 weeks. Wow. So yeah, wheel me to a room and they put me in a bed. At this point, I was like, really had swollen just a ton of, of water weight gain. T- two nurses came in to the room. One was like the head charge nurse for the floor. Um, and then uh, she had another nurse with her. And she said, I'm really sorry we try to do this before they bring the patient into the room, but we have to pad the railings on the bed in case you have a seizure um, so that you don't hit your head on the wood railings. And I was like, what is going on here in case I have a seizure? And I, I mean, I knew my blood pressure was high, but I didn't really understand the consequences of that. And, you know, further testing, I had swelling on the brain. Um, I had my kidneys had uh, all but stopped functioning, which is why I was gaining so much water, you know, over the course of just a few hours. I probably put on 40 pounds within 48 hours. And so they said the, you know, they're like, we have to get an IV in you so we can give you some medication. Nurse came in and she's like, we kind of have a one stick rule if we stick you and we don't get a vein, we'll have somebody else come in and try. And so they had two, three nurses who tried to put a, an IV in, but I was so swollen that they couldn't really find my veins. And I'm pretty pale. So my veins, you know, show up, but they brought in the anesthesiologist that was on call and using a ultrasound machine, they were able to find a vein in like the corner of my wrist that they could get an IV into. And so I received medications and whatever they needed to give me to, you know, bring my blood pressure down and, and, um, and give me some time to get those steroid shots in, which I was able to do. So So tell um, me why, tell me why the baby needs to be delivered at this point. What is happening in your body? Yeah. So after I got in bed and, and, um, I didn't even have blood pressure medication at that point, but they gave me magnesium sulfate, which is a smooth muscle relaxer. And it's one of the only medications that reduces the the seizures in women who have these high blood pressures and where the swelling has, you know, crossed over into their brains and that medication for whatever reason, for me, dropped my blood pressure enough to that it was in kind of normal range. 
And so they were like, hey, we're going to, you know, you're getting your second shot now. We're going to prep you for, you know, delivery if we can get in through this next 24 hours. And I said, but my blood pressure is fine now. Like, why are we delivering the baby if I look stable? And he was like, that's a fair point. He was like, we do need to look at the baby and see how the baby's doing. You know, we'll make our decision from a whole perspective. Are you doing well? Is the baby doing well? They already knew at that point that baby had been behind in growth based on my measurements. They knew that there was probably a, an issue. So um, I went down for an, a high level ultrasound on the baby. And when I came back, they came in and said, we're going to continue moving forward with delivery. The reasons were, um, were that uh, the placenta was really just dying. It was decompensating. So with preeclampsia, it's, it's very much placenta mediated. So the placenta doesn't implant appropriately at the very beginning, but the placenta doesn't do a whole lot, you know, for those first 20 weeks or so until the baby really starts to get big and demanding for nutrients. Um, and so if that placenta isn't implanted appropriately for whatever reason, and there's, there's multitudes of reasons that that doesn't work right, it's generally a genetic back and forth between the genes of the mom and the genes of the dad. When the baby starts demanding more, the placenta can't keep up. It releases some chemical proteins that help push more blood to the baby. It's kind of like when you put your thumb over a hose and it sprays faster. It's not really more blood. It's just faster, but that pressure, it's your blood pressure increasing to force that blood. They were seeing the placenta was decompensating. The blood flow to the baby was intermittent at best. So it wasn't a constant flow when my heart would beat, it would, it would stop. And there were times where it was reversing. And so instead of getting to the baby, that blood flow was coming back to the placenta at that point with a baby who was now very small for her gestational age and not getting the appropriate blood flow. And with my issues, it was determined that I had severe features of preeclampsia and severe features of preeclampsia. ACOG recommends delivery by 34 weeks. So I think their goal ultimately was to try to get me to 34 weeks and based on the baby. Um, so I was delivered for fetal indicators actually, because my own health had stabilized enough. I think they could have bought more time, but the baby wasn't, wasn't doing well. Yeah. So we had her right at 31 weeks. Um, they prepped us really well and said, look, she's probably not going to cry. Um, when she's born, it might be quiet. Don't let that worry you. 31 weekers do really, really well. Most of the time, you know, we have this great team. Um, my husband was able to go up and tour the NICU, you know, and see some babies that were maybe closer to the size our baby would be. Oh, wow. And um, most babies born at 31 weeks are around three to four pounds, three and a half to four pounds. And she, um, because she hadn't been getting that good blood flow for a while, was just about two and a half pounds. She was little bitty, bitty, tiny. Yeah. Give me a size yeah. equivalent. What is two and a half pounds? It's a teacup chihuahua is what it is. Oh, um, those wow. little baby chihuahuas. Her fingers to me look like matchsticks. They were just so small. Her ear, we have a picture of her. Her ear is the size of my husband's thumbnail. Wow. So she was so tiny. Yeah. Did um, you know she was a girl? I, we did know she was a girl. We had, we had, um, I had opted to know her gender. So we had some names picked out the minute she was born. I was like, we're naming her Avery. That was one of our, our names. And, um, you know, my husband was like, but and I was like, nope, that's it. And he was like, okay. 
And then, you know, there's lots of emotions because they whisked her away. I didn't get to touch her or, or hold her. I did get to see them like lift her up and put her in the little isolate that they had in the room. And then they whisked her off to the NICU. So I had a whole team of people, you know, in the room um, with me. I suffered um, a placental abruption during labor. I happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right care, because if that had happened and we weren't in the process of, of labor, you know, she or I both would have, could have died. Um, if we were at home um, and this had happened, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been good for either of us. So um, we had excellent care while it didn't certainly seem like a typical case or anything like that. And, and I think we really did shake up the team because they don't see that many really severe cases and then after delivery, I developed health syndrome. So I was just, I was actually getting worse and worse. It just didn't necessarily look like that. So, so what was um, the time yeah. frame from you walking into the hospital that day and you delivering Avery? It was probably about 52 hours or okay. something. It was, wow. yeah, it was a, a short, uh, I mean, it was a long amount of time and yet a short um, amount of time when you go in thinking you're gonna have weeks ahead of you to then have days yeah. ahead. Well, yeah, yeah, first baby, you you feel like you have a lot of time. You have a lot of time, yeah. a lot of time to, you know, be cool with your husband and, you know, dream and think and, you know. Nest and yeah. all of those things. You know, we didn't have a crib. We didn't have a stroller. I think we did have a car seat. I think somebody bought us a car seat for our, for our baby shower. I was a little freaked out about that. And the nurses were like, all you need is a car seat and some diapers. Like Isn't it's not really, <laughs> yeah. And you're like, wow. Like we spend bazillions of dollars, you know, prepping to bring these babies home. And, and they were like, you know, in some countries they send you home with like an oversized shoebox for the baby to sleep, you know, to sleep in. And right. uh, you really don't need that many things. And by the way, she's going to be here for a while in the NICU. So you're going to have some time, you know, to go get ready. And so that kind of, I think, calmed my ner nerves there as well. So even though she was 31 weeks, um, we had the benefit of having the time to get the steroids. Those are usually two shots every 24 hours. So 48 hour span. So I was able to stay steady to get those, which really helped. And then even though she was really small, she was the, the size of like a 29 weeker. She had, you know, the benefit of having stayed inside. <laughs> my womb a little bit longer to be, you know, more mature. Her lungs were more mature. Now I see women all the time who are like, well, if I don't go to the hospital, they won't deliver me. And the problem is, is that, like I said, I had this placental abruption. Had I not been already, you know, induced for labor and ready to go in that sense, it could have been, you know, devastating for, um, for either of us or both of us. I sort of understand um, that mindset though. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, well, I can tough it out, right? And that's that was my opinion too when I was laying in bed looking at my blood pressure numbers. Like these are these are within reason. These are not even really elevated at this point, you know, with the medications. So like I can tough it out. I'll lay here for however long I need to. I think they already knew, but they were like, We're listening to you. We're gonna go look at the baby. When you present with physical symptoms, we're like, we can tough it out. We can we can move through this. And in actuality. Could I have? Yeah, to a point, but it may not have worked out so well for my, you know, my baby. And we're one of the lucky ones. We had a really, you know, a really great outcome. She spent 27 days um, in the NICU and she was the, probably the most devastating thing of all was 
three and a half pounds when she came home. What do you do with the three and a half pound baby? The neonatologist that was taking care of her was really kind of, I think, very forward thinking. He's like, babies in hospitals don't sleep as well. They don't eat as well. They're not with their mothers. They don't grow as well. And so the longer we keep them, the longer, longer they stay. For the most part, after the first couple of weeks, she was a feeder and a grower. So we got through, you know, the initial concerns, breathing, her vision test, keeping her temperature um, uh, stable, her blood sugar stable. Once she really stabilized a couple weeks in, he was like, she's little, but she's, there's no reason to not send her home. So um, he was like, she will grow faster um, and better if she's at home with you. And so we were like, okay, we'll take a three and a half pound baby home. Yeah. How did you Um, feel about that? I mean, it's the most nerve wracking thing of your life. First, the trauma of getting them there. Right. And then you don't know if they're going to live or not for a while until they stabilize. Then you think about what are the other uh, quality of life issues that, that might persist? Um, What does that all look like? And then before you even have time to really grasp any of it, 27 days without your babies, like a lifetime, but it's also a really short amount of time when they say, Hey, we think she's, you know, she passed her car seat test. She can go home. And you're like, what do I do with a like little itty bitty tiny, you know, I could just sit her on my shoulder like this and like hold her with two fingers or she was so small and she wasn't, you know, as super micro preemie as, you know, as sometimes babies are born, you know, 24 or 25 weeks, just afraid, you know, that something was going to happen or she was cold or, you know, we were supposed to wake her up every three hours to feed her. And it was like, what if I miss the feeding? I'm starving her. So yeah, just so much to worry about when they're so little and they're just so fragile. So well, delicate. and I'm thinking too, 15 years ago, I mean, now they have preemie <laughs> diapers in the store. Now they do have a few preemie clothes at the store. Yeah. You know, obviously it's not like some huge stock, but I'm thinking 15 years ago, there was none of that. There wasn't. Um, they had preemie diapers um, at the, uh, actually, they don't even she had preemie diapers for a while and then they were like, just use the small ones and like full, they were all folded up and, but yeah, they're like so small. We had lovely friends who like went online and ordered preemie clothes for her. She was in preemie clothes for quite some time. Yeah. You could then just go, you know, to a nearby store, you know, Amazon wasn't a thing really then either. So (laughs) yeah. So uh, we made buy, you know, we made do and it was like, she had a handful of outfits and um, that fit her. And, you know, it's like, okay, we'll just, we're washing them frequently anyway, because, you know, babies are messy, but yeah, it's amazing. And the really interesting thing is we had a nurse who was retirement age that had her a couple of shifts and she was like, oh yeah, this is my 40th year or whatever in the NICU. And I was like, what did they do 40 years ago in the NICU? And she's like, oh, we didn't have any of these alarms and buzzers. She's like, every baby had its own nurse and the nurse sat there and if they stopped breathing, we would like wake them up and shake them and make them, you know, if they had sleep apnea or whatever. And she was like, we just basically dealt with them without all the machinery yeah. and the tech stuff that we have now. So it's nuts to me that we've come so far, even 15 years ago, they'd come so far. I was freaked out. They were like, eh, you know, 31 weekers or they can be a little touch and go. Certainly we have, um, I have members who've lost 31 weekers. You know, I would never want to be 
you know, callous to that, um, not, not, they don't all survive, right? It de depends on so many things. And um, we just, we were so lucky to have everything go right, to have the right care providers who recognized this and took care of us and, um, you know, had this great outcome. And still, you know, it was like, what just happened to me? W what's going on? And now I I'm at home with this baby who, you know, is up every three hours and the baby's angry with the world because they're not even supposed to be born yet. Um, so there's lots of, you know, creepy challenges as well. And, and to not, you know, to be in a community where you've never heard of anyone or, you know, my family or, or anywhere that's had this sort of situation, you think like, what did I do? And why did, did my body cause all of this? Did my body fail my baby? And we hear that a lot in our in our group. So, yeah, I found some really great women on the interwebs, in the old school night era, you know, 1999 blog days, um, chat forums online, and ultimately communities developed from that. Then we started our group on Facebook. And uh, when Facebook was more of a thing. Yeah. And now we're, we've grown to 30,000 women um, in 115 countries who Wow. Yeah, who are all like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know there was anyone else, right? Well, that's certainly what you else. thought 15 years ago. Yeah, it's really cool. We have a, a group of midwives in Africa who kind of rely on us. They don't necessarily have doctors nearby in some of their villages and they're the primary care providers. We have women in very rural areas. We have a lot of rural Iowan um, women who you know don't have access to specialists, like either a midwife or an OB. They might be seeing a family practitioner. They might not have a you know, we had a level three NICU. And um, so they were able to deliver my baby, take her upstairs and, and give her everything that she needed. And a lot of hospitals, some hospitals don't even have OBs on staff. One of our um, volunteers is a, an, an OB delivery nurse at a hospital um, that doesn't have an OB. And so she's delivering babies without you know, an OB and they have losses and, you know, women whose babies don't survive and women who are really, really sick. And, you know, they're having to life flight them out or, you know, send them in, a, in an ambulance and all of that time just delays care. You know, women find us from all over kind of that same thing that we, that I remember 15 years ago, like what just happened? And am I the only one? And it turns out, no, <laughs> yeah, um, five to 7%, you know, of women are going to have a preeclamptic um, experience of, the birth of their baby. So what causes it? Is it random in some respects? And can you have one experience with, you know, one perfectly fine pregnancy and then have an episode of preeclampsia? How does this all work? Yeah. So, um, pre the preeclampsia is again, caused really, um, it's multifactorial. There's a number of reasons why a woman might get preeclampsia. Having their first baby is the biggest reason they might really? have preeclampsia. It is. So um, first time pregnancy is the big, biggest risk factor. Um, part of that is because um, you are half of that placenta, half that baby is you, your DNA. And the other half is your partner's DNA that builds that placenta, which then attaches itself to your body, right? It's just like, and this is like the super simplified version um, that we tell our moms about. If you get a germ or a virus in your body, what do you do? You get sick, right? 
you sneeze, you're, you get a fever, your body tries to kill that foreign substance, right? You get a splinter, it's, a for, it's foreign to your body and your body tries to, you know, it scabs and it gets gross. And it's the same thing to, to an extent when your body, that placenta forms and starts to implant in your body, your body goes, wait, this is not just us. This is, this is foreign DNA and we should fight it. Now, the pregnant woman's body does, your, your immune system does kind of shut down. Pregnant women more often get pick up colds and things like that. Their immune systems aren't the same because your body actually, the, the sperm actually shuts down the immune system in order to allow this implantation to happen. But some of us, for whatever reason, just have maybe a slightly more active immune system. And so our body's like, no, 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 we're not letting this happen. And ultimately it does happen because it's resulted in this baby. Sometimes if it doesn't, you might have a miscarriage, right? If your body fights too much, but if the baby's formed, then your body's allowed this implantation to happen, but maybe it's not implanted as deeply as it would because your immune system kind of fought that off. So it's a genetic. That's fascinating. um, Yeah. It's just this genetic battle between, and I mean, you can go a step further back. There's like evolutionary processes. So the, the male wants to build a baby that's going to survive. So the bigger the baby, the bigger the brain, the more likely that baby is going to survive, right? The female, however, knows that this is not probably going to be her only baby, you know, evolutionarily speaking. And she needs to make sure she has enough resources for this baby as well as any future babies. And so there's a fight where the dad's DNA is like, grow a big baby. And the mom's going, I got to fit the baby out, right? So if you think caveman days, where there's not C-sections or other, you know, methods of, you know, assisting a delivery, that baby's head has to fit out mom. And so the dad's like, make this baby big, right? And the mom's like, whoa, hey, let's back up. Like, I need this baby to fit out so that I, you know, can survive. Right, um, and right. Then I'm fascinated to listening to... to this as someone who had two big giant babies. So. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Some of that like evolutionary conflict as far as how our genes work to forward the human population. And then if you add any complications, um, particularly for the mom's health history, that can complicate it further. So if you have, and let's see, like most women are young, you know, in their 20s or early 30s generally healthy, but they might have some genetic predisposition. So maybe they have a family history of high blood pressure. Well, your blood pressure may not be high when you're 28 and getting pregnant with your your first child, but you have this whole long family history of high blood pressure. You have, you probably have a genetic tendency of predisposition and the physical strain of pregnancy can actually cause that high blood pressure that you would normally get when you were 50 to pop out early, you might develop that high blood pressure during pregnancy, and maybe it doesn't even turn into preeclampsia, but that's a, that's a complication. Like 25% of women with high blood pressure will develop preeclampsia. They have it, a genetic predisposition for it. And a lot of times those women come out on the other side of preeclampsia and that high blood pressure never goes away, uh, about 50% actually. So, you know, if you have any sort of, um, you know, a heart issue an autoimmune issue, anything that's just even asthma, 
right? If you have some under diabetes, any sort of underlying condition can actually cause um, preeclampsia as well, or be a, a contributing factor to developing preeclampsia. So um, there's lots of reasons why women get it. There's like these big, like genetic evolutionary things. And then there's also like, if you're, you know, a little bit more overweight, if you have any sort of infertility, like those are all things that can contribute to getting preeclampsia. And it goes back to how that placenta implants and how the the mother's body, you know, works with the father's DNA. The reason we don't see it as much in second pregnancies is because with the same partner is that mom's body now recognizes that partner's DNA a little bit better. It doesn't, doesn't mean it won't fight. And certainly women will get preeclampsia more than once, but only about 80% will only get it the first time. Um, oh, overall it's safe to have another pregnancy. Yeah. Overall, it's safe to have another pregnancy. If mom walks out without any severe, you know, long-term complications. So sometimes those genetic tendencies do pop up and now a woman might find out that she has um, actually has a kid has chronic kidney disease and there was no reason to ever test her before or um, she's developed a, a heart issue like peripartum um, cardiomyopathy that can be like oh there's actually a heart issue here going on that needs to be fixed thyroid autoimmune conditions all of these so you find that women develop autoimmune diseases and other health issues in their 30s to 40s and a lot of times you can look back and go, oh, this happened after I had a baby. So it's either a genetic predisposition that's kind of popped up after pregnancy, or it can even be like there's can be leftover fetal cells in the mother's body that trigger inflammation that, you know, looks that's an auto not now really an autoimmune disorder or chronic hypertension or something like that. So those things will give a woman a higher risk if they have health issues after this pregnancy, but in general, less than 20% will develop preeclampsia a second time. So what was it like in your case? You mentioned before that your health actually was getting worse and you didn't realize it. I actually bounced back really quickly from the pregnancy. It was um, less than two weeks and my blood pressure had returned to normal. And we see a lot of women who have blood pressure problems, out, you know, six weeks plus out. So mine returned quickly and they said, great you know, that's a good sign that you won't have hypertension issues later on, then just things weren't right. And I'm sure some of it was just mental health as well after that, you know, that traumatic birth. Um, but I went back in to um, just kind of understand from my the maternal fetal medicine specialist who kind of took over care for me when I was in the hospital, like what happened? And they tested me for a thousand things and they found some stuff, right? So I had some underlying health conditions. My mom had psoriasis as a kid. Um, I never had any skin issues, um, but I was then diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis about eight years after delivery. You know, we found out my kidneys, you know, aren't hundred percent. I mean, they're, they're, it's not chronic kidney disease necessarily, but they're not hundred percent. Um, I have a blood clotting disorder, which is a autoimmune issue. And now then a number of years after that, the psoriatic arthritis, which is autoimmune. So I probably still would consider myself lucky as far as, you know, complications post delivery, you know, that would that actually helped make a decision in whether we were going to have more kids or not. And we decided not to, and it wasn't the risk of preeclampsia so much. It was just that I had these other health issues that just made me less inclined to go through the, you know, never sleeping and, 
running, you know, running around on the floor with, with little kids. So, and I know a lot of women will make a choice not to have a baby out of fear from the preeclampsia. And so we educate a lot around the fact that, I mean, my, I had more than one doctor say, it's absolutely fine for you to have more babies. We just, you know, made the decision not to. And that's what we kind of counsel our, our, our members. Like in general, you have a really good shot most of the time of having a successful next pregnancy. And then you, it's possible you get preeclampsia. Most people who get it again, which is a small percentage, will get it later and more mild. So even if they do get it, they're being watched for it. You know, they know what to expect because they've been through it once before. If they get it, it's likely to be much later in a much more mild form. Most of the women in our, you know, our membership do go on to have, you know, more kids, um, but it can often take a lot of consultation with their doctor and mental health therapy and getting through that trauma um, so that they can see the possibilities on the other side. We want them to make their own decision, but at the same time, we, we want them to make a decision not on fear. Right. The mental health side yeah. of it is so huge when there is a um, traumatic birth situation. I think mental health for, for new mothers is vastly understudied, let alone adding in birth trauma, right? Yeah. I, don't, I just don't think there's anything that can prepare anyone <laughs> for any of it. And so um, we know that. And then we know when you add a whole layer of like health anxiety and dealing with um, babies who have health concerns also, right? Bringing a three and a half pound baby home who had eye doctor appointments and heart, she had heart surgery when she was two. So she had, you know, cardiologist visits and she had gastroenterologist and she had a dietitian and you know, to, to be going to the doctor every other day. And, you know, like with this very fragile baby, it just, you know, it's really hard being away from your baby for so long is so hard. And, you know, it's, it's easy enough to say, Hey, they're in the NICU and this is where they're going to be best cared for. And it's still not, that's still not enough. Right. When you, you expected to take this baby home with you. So Did yeah, you mental have trouble health. bonding with her. Were you, were you able to, you know, manage those emotions and bond with her properly? Yeah. Um, I didn't find any issue bonding. In fact, I, you know, I was very worried of course. And when she was born, she was quiet. And then when they like, I saw them carry her like over to the isolate, her skin was pink. And I was just had a feeling of calm. And I was like, it's going to be okay. I didn't have any facts to base that on, but you know, I, I did have a feeling of calm. I think it actually probably allowed us to bond even more closely. Um, I was the, the mom who hadn't really thought I was going to have three kids in a white picket fence or anything like that. It was, she was a surprise <laughs> for my husband and I, and, um, you know, and we were, you know, excited about that. And yet I'm not sure we would ever gotten around to making that decision, like logically. <laughs> and so I was afraid when I first was pregnant, like, am I going to be able to bond long before I had any issues? And, you know, just getting your head wrapped around like, oh yeah, we're going to do this thing. Okay. And so I think that trauma and that, you know, that stress during those couple of days before actually allowed me to bond more quickly with her. And that's not always the case. Some women are like, I can't bond because if she doesn't, she or he doesn't survive, like, I don't know how to handle those, that, that emotion. Yeah. So we see yeah. that as well. And, and I think my husband was probably leaned more to that side. Like if this baby, you know, doesn't survive, I don't want to be close because it's going to hurt more, which is probably completely untrue. It's going to hurt just as terrible <laughs> all the way around. 
So I didn't have that problem. And I know plenty of women who do, or who are concerned, like those who are diagnosed and have a lot longer time frame before they deliver, you know, I think just the thought of like not being able to be close concerns them as far as bonding goes. I was fortunate to not have that issue. I think for me, it allowed at least me to feel more bonded. And when they're so little, they just sleep all the time. And so they pretty much sleep on you all the time. And so that I think in itself, even though it was 27 days before I brought her home, there was a whole lot of sleeping for weeks and weeks and weeks until she got to be, you know, like normal baby size. And I think that just closeness, you know, helped as well. Yeah, I was just curious because I, um, I've talked a lot on this podcast about some of my um, postpartum experiences. And, and yeah, I had a harder time bonding with my second. And now these two, I can genuinely say that we are bonded, but, but it, it took, it took a minute. It took a minute. And especially because I had, I had some issues breastfeeding and I was, I became very resentful of all the doctors who told me that he would breastfeed if I did more skin to skin and you're not holding him enough. And you know what I mean? Like all of that stuff prevented me from bonding with him because it felt like a, it felt like there was a tie between like, he's not breastfeeding because you're not skin to skinning. And you know, it's like, there was a whole thing. You're not good enough. Totally. I had the breastfeeding issue. Of course she was this big. Right. And I was so sick and so tired and, you know, every three hours and, you know, like everybody, every mom has, and she, she developed about at about two months, a little before some weird food sensitivities as well. And it was like, okay, I'm, and I had these underlying conditions and just didn't know about them yet. Right. And so it just made my recovery that much harder. So sleep deprived, like every mom, not feeling well and not really knowing why probably some, you know, mental health stuff as well. And then, you know, I had this infant who was like projectile refluxing, who was, you know, screaming all the time, (laughs) sleeping or screaming. Right. And, um, do all of these things, you know, and, um, pumping, 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 pumping. She could not take all of her feeds by breast because she's so small and they're like, you can can, you know, breastfeed once every third time or, you know, whatever. And so then you're pumping and like, the, it, that doesn't work as well. I mean, you know, it does for some people, but for me, it didn't. And it was, it was, I felt the resentment and the stress too. And it was like the whole world telling you that you should. And it's kind of the same with the whole, like having preeclampsia and the birth experience too. Like the whole world tells you that this is natural and you should be able to do it. And if you're not, you're screwing it up. Right. And it's your fault. <laughs> I had the same thing. And I was like, I'm so tired. I can't, I'm not taking care of myself. Therefore I'm not producing like I'm pumping and I'm not getting anywhere. And now I'm frustrated and I don't know if I'm going to feed my baby. And, you know, with a preemie, they're like worried about uh, neck, uh, necrotizing enterocolitis. And, you know, it's just like, yeah, you get just, it's, it's like, you're in this like weird zone where you can't get out of it. And And what a weight on your shoulders for her to be so small. And you're like, the only way she's going to get big is if I do this thing. Yeah. And so I went to the pediatrician and he kind of like, yeah, she's going to have stomach issues. She's a preemie. And then we went back the next time. And I was like, all I can tell you is that there's something wrong. There's something wrong. 
and I'm going to lose my, my stuff if we don't figure this out, you know, and he sent me to a, um, a gastroenterologist and they did some swallow studies and stuff. And yeah, she had, um, soy and dairy protein intolerance. And so there was never a way she was going to get better until we like, you know, got her on a prescription, uh, formula. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, you feel like you lost the battle with breastfeeding and, you know, it was almost some relief, but I had decided to stop breastfeeding her before we found out the, that she had this intolerance, um, this allergy. And it, and it was, it was like, you know, it's like, even my husband who certainly didn't mean to like flip me out was, was like, well, but this is so much cheaper, you know, (laughs) or whatever. And it's just like, you have no idea what that feels like on an already really just triggered and stressed out, overtired, you know, person. And it's such a hard decision. And, you know, you just feel this um, overwhelming guilt. Now I'm like the biggest advocate for like, if you feel like this is not working for you and you feel like you've tried everything and you want to stop, then stop, right? This is not going to define your relationship. It's not going to define whether your baby loves you or not. And that's kind of beat into our brains somewhere along the lines. Um, And it's not right. Like I have an amazing relationship with my 15 year old. You know, I don't even know that there's many teenage parents who can say that in general. And I look back to that prior to two months and go, why was I killing myself? Right. And it was an experience and it helped me, you know, have a, have a, I guess, perspective that I think allows me to help others. It's like, there's, you can try, you can do all of the things, right. You can drink the teas and eat the cookies and get the lactation consultants and clip the tongue ties and whatever it is. And ultimately it's like your body and your baby's not going to suffer. Your baby's not going to suffer. I just want to thank you so much for saying that because there's (laughs) hopefully there are moms in minivans and moms in bed and moms everywhere hearing you say this and going, thank you for saying that to me. Thank you for saying that to me. Thank you for validating me. Thank you for letting me know that it's okay. And that my choices and my body and my sanity matter. Thank you for saying that to people today. They do kind of like um, bringing stuff you up know, for me and like, thank you, <laughs> thank you for saying you it. can, you cannot have a healthy, well-adjusted child. If mom is not healthy and well-adjusted knowing what you need is so important asking for help. I'm still not good at it, but I know had I just asked a asked friends to come do my laundry or go grocery shopping or whatever for me, they would have, and it would have made my life so much more, more simple, but knowing that you, your babies don't remember any of this, right? We have a lot of moms who the trauma comes up on that first birthday of what happened, right? Because it's a joyous occasion that your babies made it to one and, you know, and that's also the same day that you probably experienced one of the most traumatic things in your life. If you had and trauma is different, right? It could have been that you weren't ever anticipating a C-section and everything was normal and you were 41 weeks and whatever, and you still ended up with a C-section that can be trauma. That's trauma to you. It might not be trauma to somebody else, but it's trauma for you. And that those anniversaries kind of 
tend to bring up stuff. And, you know, we always say like, moms just recently was like, how do I make this like a joyous event? Because it's such a joyous event, but also, you know, take care of ourselves. And the the answer is they're not going to (laughs) remember that smushed cake, right? It's okay if you have to go around the corner and cry your eyes out, right? Like I remember a number of years of like, I'm I'm upstairs bawling my eyes out, trying to figure out how I'm going to go face the family or whoever's coming to celebrate the birthday and then putting on the happy face. Um, It's okay to give yourself grace. It's okay to, you know, have an advocate, whether it's your partner or somebody else to say, Hey, don't forget, this is an emotional time, you know, for her, she might be weepy. Um, Let's encourage her. Let's hug her. Let's let her feel whatever it is she's feeling. Cause it could be anger. It could be sadness. It could be all of those things, you know, combined with this, you know, generous love she has for this baby getting to this point. But um, I look back on those two months of breastfeeding and I was like, what in the world did you do to yourself? I may have felt like these outside pressures, but knowing like where we ended up, you know, it, it had no impact. Um, I'm not saying like, I think breastfeeding is amazing. And like, there's so many benefits, right? I am pro breastfeeding. And I'm also pro knowing what's best for you and your baby. And there's a times. way to be both those things. There's a way to be both of those things. Yeah. There's a way to be both of those things. At some point, the benefit, you know, doesn't outweigh the the risk, right? The risk to mom. So fed is best. <laughs> fed is best. Um, for, for all of us. Now, here I am 15 years later. And, um, you know, a lot of my advocacy work is on long-term health effects. So women who've had preeclampsia have long-term health effects, can have long-term health effects because of the preeclampsia, not necessarily because of things that genetic predispositions or things that pop up, but there's, there's actually research now showing um, that there are effects. This isn't just six weeks after baby's born, everything is normal or everything is, is, you know, that was just a pregnancy thing or just a birth thing. I think 2013, um, the American Heart Association uh, recognized preeclampsia as a uh, risk factor for cardiovascular disease. One in three women, I believe is a stat, dies from cardiovascular disease related illness. If you've had a history of preeclampsia, eclampsia helps syndrome, you have a two um, in three risk. So two out of three women who've had this history will die of cardiovascular disease. So like any risk factor, um, when you can control any of those risk factors, that's what you want to do, right? So we can't control that the fact that we had preeclampsia, by the way, you can't prevent it. You didn't cause it. None of these things are in your control. Um, you can't Google search the cure for it. It doesn't exist. If it oh, did, the, we'll researchers, try. <laughs> the researchers would have also Googled it and found it. Low-dose aspirin is one of the only known preventatives for preeclampsia. And that should certainly be a discussion with your doctor. Um, they are moving in the direction of putting women on preeclampsia, if they're looking to become pregnant, uh, putting women on aspirin, low-dose aspirin, if they have any risk factors. So we know for sure that being a first-time mom is a risk factor. If you have any in addition to that, you know, your doctor may prescribe 
a, a low dose aspirin. So that's just something important to know. Um, and then for those of us who are now some years later, healthy diet, exercise, don't smoke, no estrogen birth control. Typically estrogen causes, can cause blood pressure to go up. If there's an increase in stroke risk because we already have these other risk factors, keeping in check all of the other risk factors is, is what's important for long-term healthcare. And then just having, you know, at some point a baseline cardiac um, workup, just to know what your baseline is so that later in life, you know, you can compare where you were with where you are to see if, you know, there are any impacts that you need to be prepared for. I'm wondering how Avery feels about how her birth has triggered this direction for you (laughs) and how, you know, how it's led you to where you are today and doing this advocacy work. I'm sure she's like, mom, are you on your phone again? (laughs) Um, As you know, the mom of a teenager who's always like, get off your phone, get off your screen. It's, you know, interesting. She's grown up knowing, you know, we, we used to participate, the Preeclampsia Foundation uh, had a a walk, a, a fundraising walk and we would call it the, the feats. We had a shirt that had little footprints on it, little baby footprints. And she'd call it the feats, the feats shirt. I wear the feats shirt, the feats prints, feats prints is what she'd say. Um, and she, know, we would do fundraising and things like that. And as she's gotten older school, you know, second, third, fourth grade, they, you know, introduce, you start a new class, introduce yourself to the class and bring in your baby pictures. And most of the time she's, you know, the center of attention for, for those, you know, unless there's twins in the class, because that's pretty cool too. But um, so she's kind of grown up just, you know, age appropriate pieces of information. You know, a lot of our members who are like, how do I explain to my, you know, child that we almost died? And it's like, this is, this is age appropriate. They don't need to, we don't need to talk about death, you know, when they're two or six or eight. Right. Um, but just age appropriate pieces of information. Yeah. And she knows to some extent, you know, what that looks like. She probably has no idea that I read a lot of research and um, talk stats and, and things like that, but she knows it's, you know, important at this point, she's, you know, not thinking about kids or family at this point. So um, I don't think, you know, she thinks too heavily into any of it, but she knows, you know, I've probably offhandedly said something like, your early birth is the reason you don't have any siblings <laughs> or you were such a terrible baby that no, <laughs> that you don't have a brother or sister. No, she knows that it was an ordeal and um, that mom wasn't, you know, mom was very sick. And so was she, I, you know, I think that she's just this really sweet, she's just a really sweet heart. She's just a gentle kid. And, you know, I think the best advice we ever got, um, she had heart surgery when she was two And afterwards, the cardiologist said, she's fixed, take her home, pretend this never happened and don't treat her any differently than any other kid on the playground. Wow. And it really stuck because I certainly could have kept her in a bubble. And we did when she was little, she had to be right. She had to be, you know, we had to be extra careful. And that really like whatever, however he said it, however he delivered it really made me go, okay, now is the time I can let some of this go. He gave me permission to treat her like a normal kid from this like super nerdy cardiologist, right? It was just exactly what I needed was just to be 
given permission. And we do that a lot with our members. We give them permission, whether it's permission to advocate for themselves or permission to stop breastfeeding or permission to, you know, ask for that extra test or whatever it is, permission to feel permission to feel whatever it is they're feeling and to, you know, to, to get care and to take care of themselves and to know that they are a human. They're no less important than that baby. Right. Because once that baby's born for the most part, we're just like chopped liver. Right. (laughs) And we aren't though. And we shouldn't be, and we shouldn't put ourselves there because we're the only ones that are going to advocate for ourselves as much as we love our partners, as much as we love our kids, as much as we love our parents, no one's going to advocate for you like you advocate for you. So um, while you're advocating for that baby, make sure you're advocating for yourself too. I think, you know, just that allowed us to just like let her be a kid and not, you know, fixate on all of the things we did wrong and, you know, all of the things that could have had an impact, a huge impact on her life. And so I think for the most part, you know, she's pretty normal kid and, um, we'll probably have to talk at some point, you know, if she decides to have kids, what that looks like, because I'm sure I will be obsessed about, <laughs> um, about her health and the care she gets. And, and that's probably when my insanity and OCD or whatever will pop, uh, pop up for her. And in the meantime, I just let her be. Well, yes, of course. I mean, I remember when I was 15, I was not getting married and I was not having kids because why would I do those things? No, it's certainly not, you know, top of mind for her at all, but I don't think you should underestimate the value of in 15 years, let's say. Yeah. Going to have so much information because of the work you're doing and the work that so many moms are out there doing to not do what you did 15 years ago, which was sure. I hear what the doctors are telling me. I don't know. All right. There's going to be so much information about her health and her baby's health and, and, That's why I just think what you're doing is so, so important. Yeah. Thank you. You know, our first goal was so that no woman ever felt like we did, which was alone and guilty as though they didn't do this one supposedly natural thing. Right. And the next priority is putting in place standards of care so that no matter whether you roll into a rural hospital that's not prepared to care for you, where you walk into, you know, the best university medical center, um, you know, in town, in the state, that you, that they will recognize what's going on and ensure that you get the appropriate, you know, treatment and care, in, whether that includes transportation somewhere else or not, because that's where, I mean, we only have so much control, right? But if, if everyone's aware of the potential or the possibility, there's a strategy in place, a system, then everyone can get that appropriate care and we'll have better outcomes. And then research, right? Looking into what causes this, how to prevent it, how to buy more time. You know, there, there's some cool um, treatments like apheresis, which is kind of like uh, dialysis, a little bit different, but um, that they've been working on for, oh gosh, more than 10 years to buy time. So for those moms who are at 21 weeks or 22 weeks, can they pull all the bad stuff out of your blood, 
keep that and, and give you a couple by you a few more weeks to get that baby's lungs to, you know, viability because we have lots of, you know, there's lots of women coming in in different presentations. We've got the woman who has a baby. Everything's been fine. She has perfect pregnancy. She goes home, you know, she delivers at 40 weeks, just like she planned. Her birth plan was awesome. And she goes home and two weeks in, she doesn't feel good, but she doesn't know what she's supposed to feel like because she's not sleeping and she's got this, in, you know, infant at home and she's breastfeeding and hates it and <laughs> whatever it is. Right. And goes, well, of course I'm not, of course I'm not supposed to feel well. None of the things are happening that should be happening. Right. And I'm healing and all of this, but what's actually happening is she's developing postpartum preeclampsia and she doesn't know that all of these symptoms are not normal. And she's not, they're not even planning to see her until maybe six weeks. And she gets so sick that she has a major illness, an emergency, maybe she dies, right? Like if she's not getting the care, if the hospitals aren't recognizing what this is. And then we have the moms who are super, super early and have these babies who aren't yet at viability. And then you got a whole bunch of us in the middle, right? Like 31, 32, 33, 34 weeks generally have decent outcomes, but you still have to get to the hospital and you still have to be recognized, you know, and you still have to receive treatment for all of these things to go right, you know, for the best outcome. So there's lots of, you know, issues in that spectrum and finding solutions or at least partial solutions until we have more advancement, you know, in this, on this topic to ensure the best outcomes for mom and baby and just reduce our overall maternal mortality and uh, morbidity rates. Uh, and particularly for women of color, African-American women die at three times the rate white women do um, of this very same you know, disorder. And there's no reason, right? Um, addressing all of those things and just getting better all the time. The more we can push, the better we can get, you know, the more lives that will, the more lives that we'll save. And, um, you know, and then hopefully the next generation will pick up where we left off and, um, you know, advocate more because they're the survivors, you know, we're survivors, they're survivors of this. And, and hopefully they'll continue some of the advocacy forward, whether they have complications or not. How can women find you to join the community or get more information? Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, we do have a website, endpreeclampsia.org, E-N-D, preeclampsia.org. The best place to find us, though, is on our Facebook page. Um, that maybe tells you how old we are. But <laughs> um, our Facebook um, group is a private group, but you can find us. Uh, it's preeclampsia, eclampsia, and help syndrome survivors global support network. It's a lot of words. We use a lot of words because that's how people search Facebook can find us. Um, but yeah, it's a private group. So request to join. Um, we'd love to have you. We have um, really great, uh, what we call learning units. So you can come in and read the actual research, read some, what we call plain language explainers on what's the difference between normal pregnancy swelling versus concerning swelling. We really bring all of the nuances in so that moms can truly understand whatever their doctor just told them and they have no idea what it means. We really try to help explain um, those things and you know, provide advocacy help, right? Women don't even know what questions to ask. So we help them with scripts and dialogues. Um, our goal is really to help women have good conversations with their care providers. We're not care providers. 
but we can give you, we can arm you with lots of information so that you can get the answers that you're looking for uh, from your healthcare provider. How many women are on that page? We're almost to 30,000, wow. um, 115 countries. So um, one of the coolest things for us is um, connecting people that normally would have never found each other. Uh, we had a woman join us who had lost a baby and she was in, uh, she spoke Arabic. And so fortunately, Facebook and Google Translate works really well. But, but I don't know the culture of her country, right? Um, and I don't speak her language and there's so much nuance in translation that, it, that I knew we weren't gonna be able to help her in the way she, she deserved to be helped. Um, and I posted and I said, who speaks Arabic that can help? And uh, within seconds, somebody said, well, I speak this type of Arabic and this type of Arabic. And so I connected them and they did not speak the same dialect of Arabic, but they realized they both spoke French. And so a, a conversation ensued in French um, with some Arabic and some English words thrown in. And she was able to translate everything that all the information we were giving her and then give us a little more insight on the culture and the country that the woman um, who had lost this baby was from. And we were able to help her that way. So um, those are the connections that just make everything we do worthwhile because I'm a white American woman and I have access, right? I have privilege. And I'm talking to a woman in a small rural village in Africa um, who has no access um, and to be able to connect her with somebody who looks like her and speaks like her was, was like the biggest win of the whole year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. Is this your full-time job or do you do something else? <laughs> it's not my full-time job. Um, I, uh, I, I sell houses. I, I'm a realtor. Oh, cool. So, uh, which gives me the opportunity because I run my own business to have the time to do what I do. And I, um, I do such a minimal portion of it. I have the most amazing group of volunteers from all over the world who help, who believe in the same mission, who've helped me build this group, um, who run it. We, we are pretty much 24 seven, 365. So we have moderators in Kenya, Rome, uh, Munich, Germany, all of the time zones in the US, Canada, um, Santiago, Chile. I have women almost everywhere. I have an Australian joining us shortly. So the nuances are great. And to have women who believe in the same mission, um, who want to help others and do freely of their, you know, give freely of their time and, and expertise and are willing to come on and learn what we do. We don't expect anyone to walk in as an expert, but we'll teach you how to be, you know, an expert um, moderator and, and the style that we, that we serve our members with and the safe community that we create to just come in and be able to give back to women again, who look like them and speak like them and, you know, from similar cultures. It's not the same when you don't have the insider, you know, local knowledge and, um, I'm blessed and I don't know why they do it. And I'm sure it's the same reason I do. It's this, sometimes it's survivor skill, right? Like we are some of the lucky ones. And if we can give back, you know, we want to. And so just an amazing group of people who, who run this and who have different perspectives and, you know, different experiences. Um, we often 
not only just geographic differences, but and cultural differences, but just their own experience. I have a woman who had a liver rupture. I have a woman who's had twins. I have C-section moms. I have um, women with blood clotting disorders and just every kind of issue that we see our members coming in with. We have somebody who has ex that experience and who can speak to them about their actual experience uh, on this, which is usually different than whatever your doctor had, the experience your doctor has, right? I mean, we need them for sure. And just talking to somebody who has been there and done that can just bring so much comfort and gut check, right? Like, no, this really is what good care looks like or ask for this, see if you can push for this, you know, um, here's the questions to ask. And we find that doctors typically, they don't know if you want to know or not, right? Or how much you want to know. Mm -hmm. And when you ask the right questions, they'll stop and go, oh yeah, let's talk about this, right? They're more interested to know that you're more interested usually. So we try to, you know, provide scripts and, and um, help that dialogue happen. I like to say on this podcast that, you know, motherhood is like this great connector and no matter what, you still relate. I mean, I didn't go through anything near what you went through. And yet I'm sitting here hanging on your every word and I'm relating to you in just these little nuggets of ways. And so no matter what, we still, we still know, we still know what it is. And we, we see each other's different experiences and, and learn from little parts. And it's, it's just the coolest thing. And I think if you look back a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, people grew up with more babies around them, right? They're, they had, if families had more babies, um, they had larger families. So you had cousins and aunts and um, having babies. And we were more exposed to that experience, whether it be breastfeeding or birth or child rearing. Back further than that, right? You had cultures and tribes of people who you had these experiences at a very young age and you had those women around you who were a few steps ahead of you um, or many steps ahead of you for wisdom and, and experience. And we don't have that so much, you know, anymore, you know, our family might be far away from our families. Our families are probably a lot smaller for the most part than they would have been a hundred years ago. And so we found those tribes online, right? And whether it's just a due date group, right? We have due date groups. We have um, our due date groups are a little bit different because many of our moms deliver early. So we do our due date groups in quarters because you might deliver three months early, right? But you find them online. If you don't have them, you know, in your local community, if you don't have that tribe, you find them online. And, and so we do, I feel like it's very much like what I can imagine a hundred years ago. And I had, if I had 10 people in my, you know, 10 sisters and, you know, they all had kids and, and I got to see all of that. Right. It's, it's kind of that it's just that wisdom and experience and, and just comfort. Sometimes it's just like, I, I see you, I feel you, I hear you. It's going to be all right, even though it doesn't feel like it. And we're here to support you. You come tell us, you tell us all right. How you, how you're feeling. We're going to just love on that acknowledge it and know that you're not alone. Yeah. We find our tribes online now. It's crazy, but, and even more so in COVID, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. It's so important. I think for women who have health issues, whether they have them going into pregnancy or they have a a health issue during pregnancy, I have a a really great partner, Mark Centillion, Dr. Centillion. He's an MFM with University of Iowa. He always says this at the end of every like video we do. It's not your fault. You didn't cause it. You couldn't have prevented it. Pregnancy that it happens normally ever is amazing. We don't talk about things when they don't go right so much, right? And that just is stigma. You didn't do it. You didn't cause this. You couldn't have prevented it. You did the best you could. Your body did the best it could given the circumstances, um, which were all entirely out of your control. It's okay if you ate a Big Mac. It's okay if you didn't exercise as much. It's okay if you had a few extra pounds. None of those things made a difference in, in the outcome that you have. So stop blaming yourself start loving yourself and take care of yourself um, because you are, you are important. Thank you so, so much for your words today and sharing your story. So honestly. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I want to read uh, the email that Kara sent me after the interview, which I appreciated so much. She wrote grateful for your work and opportunities for honest and raw conversations that supersede our culture of perfection. That was such a nice compliment, and I hope that that's what this podcast is and continue to be, a place where we don't have to be perfect, a place where we can feel real and be honest with ourselves about when we're doing well and when we're not doing well and connect through that because at the end of the day, we are not alone, okay? And I hope that you feel less alone every time you click on this podcast. If you are brand new to On A Mother Level, Thank you for listening. Please share it with a friend if you enjoyed it. And if you would go to Instagram at on a mother level, give it a follow. It's where we post preview clips and different information about the show and what's coming up. So I hope you will join that community as well. That's Instagram at on a mother level. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of this mom community, because when it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.